know, it's a marvelous thing when God gives us opportunities. And when he does, we've got to take them. It reminds me of Bob, who was a contestant in a game show. It advanced through the stages of the game show and was poised to win $50,000 if he could answer two questions in this final show. And he had a choice. He could choose to answer the first question first, or he could answer the second question first. He could choose which question and what order they would come in. And he thought about it, he crunched on it all week, and it came time to film and tape before a live studio audience. And Bob was there, and they said, now which question would you like to answer first? And Bob says, I'll answer the second one first. He said, all right, here it is. Bob, here's your question. And what year did it happen? <laughs> Bob missed a marvelous opportunity because he had a poor strategy. Beach Haven, I want to say to you, we have before us an unparalleled opportunity in this day. I want to make it very clear to you and the whole world, today is the best day to be an American Christian. Today is the best day to be a Christian in the athens Clark County metropolitan region. And today is the best day to be a member of Beach Haven Baptist Church. If we'll meet the terms of Acts chapter 1, we will learn and experience exactly what that is. It is the best day. And we've got to be very careful that we don't miss our opportunity, especially by discouragement, being downcast, or pessimistic. G.K. Chesterton more than 100 years ago observed that the Christian faith appeared to go to the dogs at least five times in Christian history. It appeared to go to the dogs five times in Christian history. And in all five cases, it was the dog who died, he said. And that's true. There have been many times when they have declared the death of the Christian faith. The uh, wake has been announced. The uh, visitation has been set. The funeral has been conducted, but on every occasion, the corpse got up the casket and walked out to greater days of victory. Beloved, that is the nature of the Christian faith. Um, uh, degradation is followed by glorification, and crucifixion is followed by resurrection. And that is precisely what we find in Acts chapter 1, and I believe in this day we will find it in our own church history life and existence. In Acts chapter 1, we will find some tremendous help there. In fact, we're working on a vision statement. We've got a vision statement that we are calling a working vision statement, and that is Beach Haven Baptist Church will follow Christ as Lord as a global church, not only with global missions commitments, but local missions commitments. Uh, we'll follow Christ as Lord as a global church by winning, baptizing, and training great commissionaries of all the nations, tribes, languages, and peoples of the athens Clark County metropolitan region. We looked at some of that last year. We'll continue the process for the balance of the summer into August and look at that. There's some of you that are very familiar with that, but I want to remind you, though you're familiar with it, you have to understand from a leadership standpoint and have some sympathy from a leadership standpoint why we repeat these things. The attention span of most Americans has gone from that of a 45-year-old to a 2-year-old in about 50 years. Much of that is due because of busyness and television and how our minds are wired. And so we're going to repeat this often. We're going to repeat it well. After August, if we adopt this vision statement or something like it, we'll come up with new ways of expressing it. But I have known and known well that about the time the pastor is tired of saying it, the staff is getting it. And about the time the staff is tired of saying it, the deacons are getting it. 
And about the time the deacons are tired of saying it, the Sunday school workers are getting it. And about the time the Sunday school workers are tired of saying it, finally the church members are getting it. So repetition will be a teaching method and uh, approach that we will need to use. I wish it were not that case. I wish we could tell people once or twice and we'd be done with it, but that is not the day in which we live. And if you are intellectually superior to those around you, thank God, but keep it to yourself. And please do not complain. Do not complain about repetition because most of us desperately need it. Now this leads into some priorities. And the first priority is this, Christ-likeness. We will elevate Christ-likeness because we're not ashamed of Jesus and we want to be like Him. And he was the first great commissionary. And then, worship. We'll worship the Lord Jesus with all of our might and not hold anything back. In fact, you've heard the old saying, Oh, heaven help us, all hell is breaking loose. We want to worship with such intensity and purity before Jesus that all of hell cries out, Oh, hell help us, all heaven's broken loose. Up there in that place. And then the Sunday school open group ministry will be a priority. The multiplication of Sunday school classes or Sunday school units is the number one predictor of church growth around the globe, the United States, and Georgia. And we're not embarrassed to take a stand on that. Discipleship. We not only want to win people, we want to build them up into great commissionaries. And so discipleship would be profoundly important, as will strange noises from different places in the building. And then evangelism will be a priority amongst us. Every member a witness and every member trained to share the good news of Jesus Christ. Now, if some of that causes your knees to knock and your teeth to chatter, you're in the right church. You don't want a church that lets you be lazy, apathetic, casual, or indifferent. You want a church that has priorities that cause you to drop to your knees before God and plead with Him for a new power and a new visitation of the Holy Spirit. That's the kind of church you want. You want a church that makes you feel uncomfortable at times. So you'll plead with God for new power and new help from heaven. And we intend to do that. Somebody asked C.S. Lewis, what is the most comfortable religion out there? He said, probably the one where you worship yourself. He said, I didn't come to Christianity to be comfortable. I came to Christianity for other reasons. If you're looking for a comfortable faith, I don't suggest Christianity. And that is not what we intend to do. We don't live to make people comfortable, but like Jesus, on mission for Him by the power of the Holy Spirit. Now, there are some dates that will be profoundly important to us in coming days. Beginning last, um, on last Thursday, May 21st, I started meeting with ministry leaders, and I'll do that through June the 18th to share this vision with them and some details to it. June 21st, we'll have Sunday school assemblies, preschool and children at 8 o'clock, and adults during the Sunday school hour. June the 25th, a ministry summit of all who participate in our ministries to give us feedback and thought. And then July 19th, we were asking Sunday school classes to receive feedback, feedback from members on the vision. In fact, we'll have a customized Sunday school lesson for you on that day if you'd like to teach it. July 26th, staff and deacons will meet to formulate a recommendation to the church. And then August the 16th, we'll vote on the vision recommendation. And then we'll get busy exalting Jesus through Beach Haven Baptist Church. Now in this text in Acts chapter, uh, Acts chapter 1, we find here 120 disciples of Christ that Jesus said, go get them. The woods are full of people who don't know me. Go get you some. 120 of them. No money, no language skills, no ability, no resourcing, no support, no denomination, nothing that we've got today. And Jesus said, go get it. It belongs to me. I want you to claim it and claim it all for my name. But in this text, 
He organizes every bit of what he says and does around his person and around his work. This chapter, chapter 1, is all about the Lord Jesus Christ. Verses 1 and 2, his ministry, which is described in Luke, the former account, which is the Gospel of Luke. I made, O Theophilus, of all that Jesus began both to do and to teach until the day in which he was taken up. And so Luke was about what Jesus began to do and teach. Acts is Luke's second volume about what Jesus continued to do and teach. Some call this the Acts of the Apostles, and I think that's appropriate, that's okay. But more than that, it actually happens to be the Acts of Jesus Christ by His Spirit through His followers in the book of Acts. And I think that may be, though an awkward and cumbersome title, a bit more accurate than the Acts of the Apostles. Verses 3 and 4, he talks about his death and his resurrection, to whom he presented himself alive after his suffering by many infallible proofs. And so his death and resurrection, again, surfaced here. On every page of the Bible, nearly every paragraph of the Bible, the, especially the New Testament, the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ are exalted to preeminence, and they should be in every church and in every ministry. Verses 5 through 8, we find his commission summarized in verse number eight you shall receive power when the holy spirits come upon you and you shall be witnesses to me in jerusalem and all judea samaria to the end of the earth verses 9 through 11 his mysterious and unknown oftentimes ascension into heaven when he'd spoken these things while they watched he was taken up and a cloud received him out of their sight and then he ascended to the right hand of the father and everything jesus has been since that day to us now is because of this one event in verse 9 he ascended to the right hand of the father then verses 12 through 14 his people gathered together in prayer and you've got even the brothers of jesus there who did not believe in him during the days of his flesh you've got the mother of jesus You've got Peter who denied him. And so they gathered together in a prayer meeting and there's marvelous forgiveness that flows between all of them. They had to forgive each other for uh, abandoning and disobeying Jesus Christ. And they gathered together under his banner and God breaks loose in chapter 2 uh, in a way from which the world has never been the same. Beloved, I want to make very clear to you. The glory days of Beach Haven Baptist Church do not lie in the past. The best days of Beach Haven Baptist Church are not merely in our memory. If we have Jesus, we have the future. Because we have Christ today, these are the best days to serve Christ through Beach Haven Baptist Church. Now, how can you be so certain? Well, let me mention several things that arise from the text. Number one, these are the best days because we have an active Lord. Wouldn't it be a marvelous thing to walk through this life and walk through ministry and service with Jesus right beside us like the disciples and the apostles had? Wouldn't it be a great thing to hear His words? Wouldn't it be a great thing to enjoy His sweet companionship? Wouldn't it be a great thing to hear His voice and the tone and the tenor of it? Wouldn't it be a great thing to have Him accompany us through all of our sorrows and woes and challenges and difficulties and everything that came our way? Our beloved chapter 1 verse 1 Luke was about all that Jesus began to do and teach, and the rest of the book of Acts happens to be about what he's continued to do for two millenniums. And then chapter 1, verse 9, he ascended into heaven, and because he ascended into heaven, everything that he has been doing for two millenniums, he's done because he did ascend to heaven. You think about how the Bible describes him, and it's marvelously encouraging. 1 John chapter 2, verses 1 and 2 say, He is our advocate currently with the Father. He pleads our case. He is our mediator, according to 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 5. 
He intercedes with us, according to Hebrews 9.24. He's preparing a place for us, according to John 14, 1-4. He is like a husband to the church, nourishing and cherishing it, according to Ephesians 5.25. He is our priest, according to Hebrews chapter 4, verse 14 through 16. He's the head of the body, Ephesians 1.22. He is the true vine, our source for us branches and our fruitfulness, according to John chapter 15. He's the good shepherd, according to John chapter 10, verse 11. He's the cornerstone around which everything is shaped, according to 1 Peter 2.9. And he walks in the, in the midst of his churches, according to Revelation 1.17. Beloved, I don't look back on the first and second and third uh, centuries of the Christian church as the glory days. Not even the days of Jesus in his flesh when he was on the earth. The glory days of the Christian church are today because Jesus is just as real today as he was during the days of his flesh on this earth. Can Jesus walk with us? Can he speak to us? Can he comfort us and accompany us in all of our sorrows and loneliness? Oh, you bet Jesus Christ is as alive and real today as he has ever been. Make no mistake about it. And so our hope is not found in our resources, our people, our history, or our location. We have hope in this day through this church as long as Jesus is alive. And that's why we have hope. So this is the best day to serve Him. And I would encourage you as quickly as you can to sell out to Him because Jesus is going places. These are the best days because we have an active Lord. But secondly, these are the best days because we have an attested Lord. I'm, uh, I'm sympathetic with questions from those who doubt the Christian faith uh, if they're humble and really seeking answers. Uh, they've been confused by someone. They've been confused maybe by a professor, by a book, a newscast, or some other source. I'm very sympathetic. But I'm amused with hostile skeptics. In fact, I want to encourage you when you find someone hostile to the Christian faith, have a little fun with them. Uh, oftentimes, they're tore up and upset and angry and mad. And when they do that, they're clouding their, their thinking becomes cloudy in many ways. And just be real kind, be patient, but have a little fun with the hostile skepticism. In fact, I'd say to you, those who are hostile skeptics, they end up questioning the Christian faith with a lack of historical awareness. They don't know what's going on through history with the Christian faith. They imagine themselves as being the first ones ever to challenge the Christian faith. And as if this is the first time we've ever had challenges to the Christian faith. Well, I've got news for you. There aren't really any new questions in this day. We've been dealing with them for 2,000 years and have brushed aside nearly every one of them. And so uh, I, I do want to encourage you to uh, not be intimidated, not to be bowed down, and certainly don't be bullied by those with questions about the Christian faith. I remember in college I was challenged to question through why I believed what I believed. And I had to come to some conclusions about that. I asked myself some very penetrating questions. Do I believe in Jesus Christ and His Word and His resurrection simply because my pastor and my church taught me that? Or do I believe because I have personally chosen to believe and I myself have got good reasons to do so? It was not enough that the authorities in my life had taught me that. I had to come to the conclusion of my own. I couldn't merely borrow their faith any longer. I had to have a faith of my own. And chapter 1, verse number 3 is going to help us because it talks about the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And I would say to you, as many historians have said, we have more evidence for the resurrection of Jesus Christ than any other ancient event in human history. Chapter 1, verse number 3. 
to the apostles, he presented himself alive after his suffering by many infallible proofs, being seen by them forty days and speaking of the things pertaining to the kingdom of God. Two of the many uh, evidences for Christ and his resurrection are found in the simple text. First, of the apostles. They were not predisposed to believing in miracles of the resurrection. In fact, they doubted it. They thought once he was dead, he was dead forever. And so that's why they were hiding in fear. Now, there are some who criticize ancient people by saying they were predisposed to believing just about anything that was miraculous, and they did not look at it with a critical mindset. Don't tell these apostles that. That does not apply to them. They doubted the resurrection of Christ, and when they were told by Mary, for example, of the resurrection of Christ initially, they did not believe. And when Jesus appeared to them in Mark 16, he chastised them for their unbelief. Not all ancient people were predisposed to believing in the miraculous. And if something miraculous happened, that doesn't mean that they bought into it. In fact, the Jewish leaders attempted to kill Jesus and Lazarus when Jesus raised Lazarus from the dead. And so they're predisposed to fear. They're predisposed to being bullied. They are predisposed to hiding. They're predisposed to doubt. And yet, they become the most leather-lunged, bold witnesses the world has ever known. In fact, we elevate them today as our model. But then, it says here in the text, they saw him alive. The apostles did here in this text. Now, what attorney in the earth would not appreciate having 11 eyewitnesses of a singular fact. Eleven eyewitnesses, and later there would be 500 eyewitnesses to Jesus Christ when he appeared to them at once, not multiple times, but once, which eliminates the possibility of a hallucination. And so the, uh, the Lord Jesus in his resurrection and truth is wildly and widely attested. You have got a sure and certain message to declare to the world, Jesus Christ is Lord because he's risen from the dead. Stand on it, be assured on it, it is firmer than the ground underneath your feet. So, these are the best days because we have an active Lord and an attested Lord. But then, these are the best days because we have an almighty Lord. One of the most frustrating realities of life and service happens to be the condition of the human heart. One pastor jokingly said, ministry would be wonderful if it weren't for all the people I have to work with. That's sometimes probably how you feel as well. I've never quite gotten to that point, but I will tell you, you don't have to be a cannibal to get fed up with people. And you may have felt that way at some time or another. The big problem is you cannot reach into a person's heart and change them and make them do right. You cannot impose your will upon them. All you and I can do is declare the word and invite them to come to the Lord. But I've got good news for you. You don't have to have the power, the tact, the shrewdness, the smarts to change people's hearts. It's not necessary for you to do that because the Holy Spirit is perfectly able and capable of doing it on His own. And Jesus magnifies the role of the Holy Spirit in verses 4 through 8. We find here in verse number 4 the promise of the Spirit being assembled together with them. He commanded them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father, which He said, You have heard from Me. The Father knows our needs and He interacts with us like the best of fathers. 
He's never been abusive. He's never been negligent. He's never been distant. Instead, he is very cognizant and conscious of every need that every child of God has. And out of that great concern, out of that magnanimous love, he gives us the Holy Spirit. And he, uh, Jesus taught them that in John chapter 14 through chapter 16. Now there's a marvelous difference and transition that takes place in the Scripture from the Old Testament to the New Testament in relation to the Holy Spirit. In the Old Testament, the Holy Spirit would come upon a Samson or a David or a Solomon, or a prophet, momentarily, and would come upon him for a special task and then leave. But in the New Testament, the Holy Spirit now comes within believers to reside with them permanently, never ever to leave again. And so the truth is, being on this side of the cross and resurrection in Pentecost, we have marvelous advantages over those who were before the crucifixion, resurrection, and Pentecost. And so there is the promise that the Father keeps. And then, not only the promise of the Spirit, but the plunge of the Spirit. Verse 5, he said, you've heard this from me, for John truly baptized you with water. And Jesus here is bringing an illustration of what it means to have the Holy Spirit. He says, John baptized you, he immersed you with water, but you shall be baptized with the Spirit not many days from now. Now, don't you just love the image of baptism for our relationship with the Holy Spirit? Baptism means immersion. It means to dip. And so when we baptize, we dip. And the president of the Southern Baptist Convention is the big dipper in many ways. And so you plunge people underneath water. It doesn't mean to sprinkle. It doesn't mean to pour. Nothing like that. It means to completely immerse under the level of the water. In fact, in um, the um, uh, early centuries after Jesus uh, was uh, crucified, There's a complete immersion in the Holy Spirit. In other words, the power and the presence and the work and the fruit of the Holy Spirit is available to all the children of God in abundant proportion. God does not economize with the Spirit. He has no budget. He doesn't need one. He's not like us. He has unlimited resources in the Holy Spirit. John 3, 34. He gives His Spirit without measure. And so he always communicates terms of the Holy Spirit and our relationship with him in terms of abundance. Then there's the process in verses 6 through 7 of the Spirit. And this is oftentimes misunderstood, unfortunately. Therefore, when they come together, they ask him, because of talk of the Holy Spirit, saying, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? And he said to them, well, it's not for you to know the times or seasons, which the Father set by his own authority, but you will receive, if I may paraphrase, kingdom power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. I'm not going to tell you the time of the full restoration of the kingdom, 
But I am going to tell you about the power of the kingdom. And so, and the process of the kingdom. And the process is simply that through your witness, God will incrementally implement his kingdom in hearts around the world before that great apocalyptic return of Jesus Christ to the earth. And so Jesus isn't brushing aside their question. He's actually answering it. He said, I'm not going to tell you the times or the seasons, but instead I'm going to tell you the process he's going to use to incrementally bring his kingdom. And that is through the verbal witness of his people. And then there is the power of the Spirit, verse 8. Look how adequate the power of Christ's Spirit is in the world. You shall receive power when the Holy Spirit's come upon you, and you shall be witnesses to me in the most stubborn place and troubled place in all the earth, Jerusalem. And then in all Judea, which was mixed with Gentiles, and Samaria, to the Jew, one of the most disgusting places in all the earth, and then it gets worse to the ends of the earth. In other words, the power of the Holy Spirit is perfectly adequate for every exigency of human life. Anything that arises, the power of the Holy Spirit through His witnesses is adequate. It's adequate for the troubled and distasteful places in the world. There's no place in the world or Athens-Clark County metropolitan region where the gospel of Christ by the power of the Holy Spirit is not adequate. God is not intimidated by this age. God is not in retreat. God is not in defeat. He necessarily advances forward. He's always onward, upward, forward for conquest, for glory. He is into glorification and exaltation of His Son's name. Do not for a moment think that our God is intimidated by this difficult and wicked age. In other words, He sees this world as a target-rich environment, and He is on His move. In His death and resurrection, then, Jesus Christ secured all the Holy Spirit's resources for all of those that know Jesus Christ. And that's why here today, nearly every one of you, those of you who know Christ, is about a quarter inch away from being an effective, spirit-filled witness for Jesus Christ, and God can use you mightily. So I want to say this. Our future as a church is not wrapped up and dependent upon redevelopment of the Atlanta Atlanta Highway Corridor, the building of new subdivisions, or a government sympathetic to our cause Our future belongs to those who lay hold of the power of the Holy Spirit. And against that, there is no weapon form that can defeat Him. That's where our future lies. And so if we'll lay hold of the power of the Holy Spirit, these can be the best days. But there's another reason, and that is these are the best days because we have an adequate Savior. He's adequate for the simple. He said, when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, you untrained fishermen, you uneducated fishermen, you reviled tax gatherers. I want to say to you, if we were looking at building a worldwide movement, we would not have looked to these men or these first 120. They were not the powerful. They were not the elite. They were not the well-resourced. They were not the well-connected. They were the opposite in many, many ways. But their hearts were humble, and they were hungry for God and hungry for Jesus Christ, and God used them, and everything has been different ever since. There's nothing then, friend, about your station in life that can keep Jesus Christ from using you. You are a potential powerhouse of the Holy Spirit because Christ is adequate. He can make something out of you. And so he's adequate for the simple. He's adequate for the responsible as well. He said, you shall be my witnesses. And that has got a long Old Testament history. Leviticus 5.1 says that if you witness something and don't tell it, whenever witnesses are called, then there's an awful lot of trouble with the court of God. 
In other words, there is a obligation for us to be His witness. And if we'll witness for Him and tell what we know, then God will use us. Then there's ad- He's adequate for the distracted. In verses 15 to 26, they get distracted by something Jesus never told them or authorized them to do, and that is to replace Judas, who uh, had disqualified himself from the apostleship and by this time was dead. Nevertheless, despite that mistake on their part, God moved forward. Now, later in Acts chapter 9, he would come select his own replacement for Judas as an apostle, and we know him as the apostle Paul. And then he's adequate for the context. Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, the uttermost parts of the world where you'd find materialists and you'd find racists. You'd find good old boys. You'd find professors. You'd find students. You'd find those of false religion even today and even our Anglo-Saxon ancestors and ancestors from other continents of the world. Ladies and gentlemen, the truth is is that because Jesus Christ and his gospel are adequate, we can dream of worship movements and evangelism movements and Sunday school movements and missions movements and stewardship movements and church planning movements from all locations on the earth, from Manhattan to Minneapolis to Moscow to Mecca. And I'm looking forward to the day when we plant the First Baptist Church of Mecca. So I want you to understand, I'm not looking for expulsion from the garden, but its return. Not looking for Pharaoh's army to defeat us, but the wind of God to blow to clear a dry path across the Red Sea to the other side. Not a desert to dehydrate us, but lo, a spring of joy before me I see. Not a dusty desert, but a place where the rose blossoms in the desert. Not the taunts of uncircumcised Philistines like Goliath, but David's son with a sling and five smooth stones. Not the dominance of evil, but the day a voice from heaven shouts, the kingdoms of this world have become the kingdoms of our Lord and his Christ, and he shall reign forever and forever. If we will trust the sufficiency of Jesus Christ, these can be the best days of our lives. Consider it for a moment. About 55% of all the websites on the Internet are in the English language. About 55% are. You think about all the words that make up all of those websites. All the thousands, the millions, perhaps the billions and trillions of words that make up those websites. Just think about it. All the things that are communicated, all the good, all the evil, all the right, all the helpful, all the words that are found on all the English-speaking websites in all the earth. And do you realize all those words are composed with merely 26 letters from our alphabet? All of those words develop from 26 letters of our alphabet. Do you know why? Because that's all it takes to say all the words in the English language you would ever need to say, at least on these websites. So friend, what I want to say to you, in the same way, Jesus Christ is sufficient for every need that every Christian and every church has. All the great work that we could ever do is summarized in Him, and He is sufficient to meet the needs. He's sufficient for the problem of human sin. The Bible clearly teaches that. Matthew 15, Jesus said it comes from the heart. He's sufficient to understand the solution because he said, I'm the way, the truth, the life. No one comes to the Father except by me. And he's sufficient to understand our response. He promised in Matthew 7, 7, Ask it shall be given to you. Seek you shall find. Knock the door shall be opened unto you. That's a promise he makes to you. And he invites you to turn to him and say yes to him and bow to him. And we want to encourage you to do that today. Would you pray with me, please? And would you quickly stand with me, please, as we do pray?
And Father, we want to thank you for the opportunity, dear God, for us to call upon your name and say yes to Jesus. Thank you, he's a loving Savior and he's available to anyone who will call upon him, who will embrace the reality and the problem and the guilt of sin, the sufficiency of Christ and his death and resurrection, and that what we need to do is respond to him by turning to him and asking. Would you help friends do that today? Some need to ask you for salvation and a cleansing and for you to take control of their lives. Dear God, there are others that need to come and become part of Beach Haven. We ask for that. And then, Father, we uh, have others that need to turn their burden over to you. And we pray in this time they would find grace and mercy to help in their time of need. We bless you for hearing us now. Now, we're going to sing in just a moment.